The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. I uh, want to say a couple of things before we begin this morning. First of all, if your first Sunday uh, here with us at Abner Creek was two weeks ago and you've heard me preach twice and the tall guy preach once, I just want you to understand that I'm, I'm not the pastor and he's just on vacation, so... Um, but you got me this morning, and, um, and we'll be able to consider Daniel, the book of Daniel together, chapter 3, if you would like to, to turn there in your copy of God's Word. Uh, we're going to read the entire third chapter, um, and, and if you do not have a copy of, uh, of the Bible with you, uh, the words will be on the screen, so no worries there. I also want to put, put out a plug just to, just to maybe... Um, ease a concern that you might have. You, you hear us often encouraging you to, to, to make sacrifices to um, be involved in a Sunday school class or in a small group. And then on the other hand, you hear us come back and say, well, we really need you to serve in these places like, like the children's ministry, which happens to, to go on during the Sunday school hour, uh, at least part of it. And what I want to encourage you to do is to, is to just hang on. Because right now, uh, myself and, and Ethan and Scott are, are, and, and some other people are, are praying through um, and, and trying to discern how we can roll out, um, how we can, can rethink and to improve the way we make disciples here at Abner Creek. And one thing that that's going to involve is encouraging what has already started um, in the form of, of a, a small group ministry. There have been some small groups that have already arisen organically. Now, we're not going to do away with Sunday school and make some kind of radical change there. But if you're wondering, how can I have community? I, I don't want to leave my Sunday school class. I don't want to leave this place where, I'm, where I'm, I'm being ministered to and I'm doing life with people and I'm being held accountable and, and confessing sins and, and, um, and bearing one of those burdens. But, but I also want to serve at the same time. Hang on, because we're, we're doing what we can to try to uh, facilitate uh, the, the things that the Lord has entrusted to us here. So if that's interesting to you at all, I would love to hear that from you, and, and we'll, we're going to push you in the right direction. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to, to put that out there this morning. We're going to begin by reading in Daniel chapter 3, and, um, and what I want to encourage you to consider as we begin to read is that you're about to hear a story that if, if you grew up in church, um, you, you've heard before. But we, we must become students still, no matter our situation in life, no matter our age or, uh, or any other circumstances, we must continue to be a student of Daniel chapter 3 because of the reality of the world in which we live. I've entitled this sermon, Believing in These Evil Days. We are confronted with the reality that um, we are believers in a very interesting time in our nation's history. We are believers in a very interesting time uh, as it relates to how the state treats the church and how the church is going to treat the state and how our culture uh, is increasingly becoming a culture that does not look like us and how we are going to keep the faith once for all entrusted to the saints during these days. Um, so, so with that in mind, I think Daniel chapter 3 has a great deal to teach us. So let's become a student of it this morning. I'm going to read, you know, kind of a long passage here, but, but I trust that, that you will find it beneficial and, um, and that we can just kind of hang in there and learn what Daniel has to say to us. Daniel chapter 3, beginning in the first verse. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to, to gather the satraps, the prefects and the governors and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So he, he, he builds a, 
he builds a, an idol. He builds a statue of sorts, and then he calls people together to, to worship it. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, uh, they called him together that they, to, to worship the, uh, the image that he had set up. Verse 4, And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, bagpipe, uh, the horn, pipe, lure, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. What we see here is a picture of the anti-gospel What we see here is a distortion of what will one day happen in truth in heaven. Notice what what happens here. All the peoples, nations, languages fell down and worshiped. If you've been here at Admiral Creek for very long, I hope you have seen that our passion is that every nation, every people, every language, ethnicity, station in life, economic uh, status will one day come to worship the one true God. What is happening in Daniel is the opposite of that. What is happening in Daniel is that all the people under pain of death, on threat of pain of death, are coming to worship something that is false. And they are being coerced by the government to do it. Verse 8. Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, all of these instruments shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and he answered them and said, Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who would deliver you out of my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it Known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. The expression on his face was changed against them. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind them and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound on their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the fire was overheated. The flames of the fire killed those men who took them. And these three men, Shagrat, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking around in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And they came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not the power over the bodies of those men. Then the hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. 
and no smell of fire had come upon him. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had set this angel and delivered his saints, who trusted in him and who set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue you in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's pray. Lord, we we come to your word and we recognize the reality that every time we approach your word, we are always changed. We either respond in softness of heart and, and we become a little more like you and we conform our minds and our hearts a little more to what your word says, or we we harden our hearts and we stiffen our necks and we become a little more callous to you, a little colder and a little more uh, unaffected by your Holy Spirit. I pray that would not be the case this morning, but instead that we would look to your word and say that your word has the power over us because you are the God who has power of life and death. You raise up kings, you cause kings to fall, and you will be with us to the end of the age. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So in view of this passage of scripture, we're going to go back and hit a couple of highlights in the text. But in view of this passage of scripture, I just I want to ask you a question for you to answer in your own heart. And that question is, what is your deepest treasure? What is your deepest treasure? This, this cause, answering this question honestly, answering this question truthfully causes some, some rather uncomfortable self-examination. I was talking to my brother-in-law um, uh, a couple of weeks ago actually last week, Memorial Day, and he was telling me that, that he was kind of caught off guard by the pastors at his church who had approached him and asked him if he would consider praying about becoming an elder uh, or a, a deacon, a servant there who, who is involved in the leadership of the church. And he said, you know, as they were explaining it to me and explaining what it, it was and what it involved, I, I really was uncomfortable with it because I never saw myself that way. I never viewed myself as kind of a, of a, of a leader, of, a, of, a, of a, something of a pastor, something of a shepherd. And, and really, the, the last six, you know, three or four hours or so, I, I've been examining my heart and, and really what I see, I don't like. And, and, and I encouraged him by saying, you know, I, I think that's very healthy. It's very healthy to examine ourselves and, and, and to find things in our hearts that, that we're not altogether comfortable with because of the reality of who we are that we are sinners still. And we must ask ourselves, what is our deepest treasure? What is the, the, the desire that resides under all of the other desires in our hearts? What, the, the things that we like to do, what are those things serving? The things that we like to, to watch and to hear and to take part in and the people we like to be around, what are those desires, the toys that we have, what are those desires ultimately feeding? What desire is at the bottom of all of the rest of our desires? What is at the base? Is it, uh, is it, is it our comfort is that the, the bridge that, that we won't cross? And I, I'll do anything as long as it doesn't involve me becoming uncomfortable. Does it, is it our, our opinion? Have, have, we, have we believed that our opinions and the things that, that we, that the ideas that we formed, perhaps at different stages of our life in college, that those are the, that, that must be true because I believe it and, and we cannot negotiate those things. Is it our family? Is it our, our wife, our, our husband, our, our, our bank accounts? I'll, I'll do anything as long as it doesn't affect my bottom line. What is the base desire that we interpret everything else in our lives by? I'd like to say it's Christ. And I would like to say that it's Christ every day. We must constantly re-examine this. A recent Pew study came out, many of you may have heard or seen on social media, that suggested that Christianity in America is on the wane, is on the outs. But a little more uh, careful study into the data suggests that instead nominal Christianity is on the way out. Christianity in name only 
um, it is, seems to be on the way out. We are living in an age where our culture is shifting from beneath us. And as Russell Moore has said, we must begin to understand ourselves as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood themselves. That they are no longer a moral majority, but instead they are a prophetic minority. They no longer have the weight of the politicians behind them. They no longer have the weight of the media behind them. They no longer have the weight of the culture and the norms behind them. Instead, the culture is going away from them and they have to make a decision. When they tell me to bow down, what am I going to do? This morning, I'm aware of an incredible task that has been given to myself, Ethan, Scott, ministers across our land, and that is the task communicated in Ephesians 4.12, that we must equip the saints for the good work of ministry. That is why we are all the time trying to, to reconsider how we're going to make disciples here. What is that going to look like? Is our current structure going to bear the weight of what Christ has called us to do? Equip the saints for the good work of ministry. This is somewhat frightening, though, because we understand that how we made disciples yesterday is probably not going to bear the weight of how we must make disciples tomorrow. Because we do not have the favor of the culture behind us anymore. We have gone from the moral majority to a prophetic minority. This voice crying out in the wilderness, not the mainstream anymore, but still bearing the truth. We should not be surprised by this because ever since Genesis 3, the powers of Satan and what the Bible calls the offspring of the serpent have been ever at war with the offspring of the woman and with the kingdom of God. So these things should not take us by surprise. While every evil has been defeated at the, at the cross of Christ, we live in this reality, this already but not yet, this already understanding that everything, every evil thing has been defeated in Christ, but that has not reached its ultimate fulfillment yet because Christ has not yet returned. It's kind of like recently, some of these high school students or maybe even college students, I remember my senior year in college, when all of our exams were done, there were like two days there where I was for all intents and purposes, a college graduate, but I haven't received my diploma yet. And that is the age that we live in, that all of the work has been finished, but we've got this short period of time before the ceremony happens. And we live in this age that is increasingly and increasingly difficult. Everything has been purchased and paid for and won in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but we wait for that moment when he returns and restores everything to its original intent. It is in these days that we must figure out how to live as disciples, how to stay pure, how to advance the gospel, and how to not cave under the, pressure of the, under the pressures of the world. And, and the reason that I'm saying all this is because what I see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and later in, in the book of Daniel, in Daniel himself, when he goes out onto the roof and he's been told not to pray, he's been told not to worship anybody but the king, and he, sa- and he goes out onto, the, onto the, his roof, his uncovered roof, and does just like he had done before and prays so that he could be seen. What I see here is people who understand that their base treasure, their bottom desire, the desire that they interpret everything else by is the glory of God. It is Christ. They say, you can take everything else from me, but I still have this. And this is enough for me. Recently, Ray Ortland, who he's pastor, he's he's a he's a, a board member on the Gospel Coalition, which is a great resource. Uh, he, he is um, pastor of Emmanuel Church in Nashville, Tennessee, t- Tennessee. He shared the most important thing that he's ever read outside of the Bible. I recently saw this come across there, and he said this: "It's a quote from Francis Schaeffer, who who died a, a couple of decades ago. The central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism or nor the old Roman Catholicism nor the new Roman Catholicism nor the threat of communism nor the threat of rationalism and the monolithic consensus which surrounds us, whatever that means. It sounds good, so I'll just say it. All of these are dangerous but are not the primary threat. The real problem is this, that the church of Jesus Christ individually or corporately 
Tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than the power of the spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. The danger always lies in here for us. The danger does not lie outside. The danger does not necessarily lie in the culture. And I'll prove it to you. Because we must understand what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood that it doesn't matter the size of the army outside. Our God is a God who can tell us to march around the wall seven times and they will just come down. The only question is, are the people of God going to believe God when he says march around the city seven times? That's where we break down in believing what God has said for our deliverance. Schaefer understood that the main problem is that the people of God will not look to God for deliverance. Rather, we might be tempted to look inside ourselves or to other false saviors. And this comes, by the way, from misplaced treasure. This comes from misplaced treasure. This looking for other things to cope or for other things to deliver us. It comes from a misunderstanding of treasure. We understand from Romans 13, Romans chapter 13, that we are to submit to the governing authorities since God has allowed them to come, you know, into power for a reason. But what we see here in Daniel, and, and by the way, this means Romans 13, that we do need to pay our taxes. We do need to pull over when the police turn on the blue lights and we need to abide by what our elected officials tell us to do. But what Daniel shows us is a picture that teaches us where our obedience cannot go. To borrow a phrase from a Ronald Reagan speech, 1964, time for choosing. He said, there is a line beyond which we cannot retreat. And for us, that means that we cannot obey when our culture or our government coerces us to do things or to fail to do or say things that make us lie about the nature of the one true God. Why? Because as we have just determined, as we have just established in our church series, that our church is to be a picture of the gospel, a picture showing the world what God is like. And if we bow down to the other gods, then we, in essence, lie to everyone else about what God is like. And we cannot do that. That is why there is a point beyond which we cannot retreat as the culture advances on us. It wasn't probably just about six or seven years ago, five years ago, when the culture was telling the church, you know, folks, come on, separation of church and state, you know, get, get, get out of politics, whatever that means. Now it's interesting. Now the church is telling the culture, hey, separation of church and state, get the state out of our churches in a short period of time just like that. The roles have been absolutely, completely reversed. Looking to the text, we see, we see a few principles here before we, 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 be, before we continue looking at things in specific. We see, first of all, that God's name, nature, and the gospel itself cannot be compromised. Why? Because it breaks the first commandment. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That is why. If, if the culture ever asks us to break the first commandment, then we can know that we are far beyond Romans chapter 13. We are far beyond that. This is in itself an act of worship. When we refuse to bow down to the other gods of our generation, we are in, a, in essence proclaiming that the law of our God transcends, it passes over, it overshadows the law of man. We are saying, I will serve no other gods before you. There are a couple of gods. First of all, the God of political correctness. This is a false God. Why? Because if we bow down to it, then we will by definition uh, forsake the gospel. Why? Because the gospel by its nature is offensive. The gospel by its nature is politically incorrect. It says you and I are wrong. And if we bow down to the God of political correctness, we will lose the gospel. And when we lose the gospel, the gospel will lose its power to save sinners like me and you. That is why we cannot bow down to that. And by the way, even though the gospel is offensive, let's make sure that it is the gospel that's offensive and not just us. 
not just us being cantankerous people. Secondly, the God of conformity. There is such a temptation to morph and to mold our own beliefs and speech into the culture around us. However, if we do this, we are failing Romans 12 too, which says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. I tell the students all the time, I said, one day, guys, you're gonna go to college and in the front of the room is gonna be kind of this dude who's balding right on top and he's wearing a tweed jacket and these little round spectacles and he is gonna sound really smart and he's got a, he's got a few letters after his name that you don't know what they all mean. And he's gonna make it sound like you are an abject fool if you do not believe everything that he believes. And everybody wants to conform. Everybody wants to be smart. That's the reason you go to college, right? Because, you know, you, you want to be smart. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood these things. They understood that asking them to bow down to another God would be idolatry and would show the world that their God, Yahweh, had little concern for his own name. Yahweh had little concern for his own name. The name of God, this is, this is probably the crux of everything that I have to say this morning. The name of God and the glory of God must be our driving passion because it is God's driving passion. So it may seem arrogant, it may seem arrogant for God to, to desire that his fame would increase, but in reality, if God is who he says he is and he is good and he is just, then it does us good as humans when his fame does spread. When knowledge of, his, of him does cover the earth as the waters cover the dry lands. Knowledge of God, his fame increasing does us good. Let's look to the scriptures and I would encourage you, if you would like to turn, it's just the book before this in Ezekiel, otherwise it will be on the screen. Ezekiel 20 uh, verse uh, verses uh, eight and nine. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them were, uh, were cast away to, uh, none of them cast away the detestable things that their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spread my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived. God has a passion for his own name. Why? It's because of Acts 4.12. There is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved. Why is the name of Christ important? Because it is the only name that brings salvation. I encourage you to look also in, in Ezekiel 36. I'll read uh, verses 20 and 21. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, these are the people of God, and yet they had to go out of this land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. God has a passion that he be pictured clearly in the world. And if we bow down to the gods of the culture, then we will fail to do that. We will fail to show the world what God is like. And in so doing, it is offensive to God himself. That is why these things are so important. I would encourage you to take a, a couple of weeks maybe and just to read through Ezekiel. And every time you hear this phrase, underline it. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Ezekiel 28, uh, 26. In, in 27, in Ezekiel 20, uh, 27, and they shall know that I am and the Lord. It can just keep going. Uh, Ezekiel 25, then they will know that I am the Lord and I will execute judgment on Moab. And uh, just before that, I will destroy you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I, I guess you would, right? If the Lord uh, destroys you. We see all the way through uh, the book um, of Ezekiel in, in chapter 17, and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. The trees of the field will know that he is the Lord. And I will bring low the high tree and make the high, high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the, the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, I will do it. We see uh, continuing in, uh, in verse 13, I'm going, going backwards. Therefore you shall no more see false visions nor practice divination. I will deliver my people out of your hand and you will know that I am the Lord. And I will set my face against the man. This is later in, in chapter 14. I will set my face against the man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off in the midst of people. And you will know that I am the Lord. 
The house of Israel will no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves any more with all their transgressions, but they may be my people, and I will be their God, declares the Lord. We see this all the way, chapter 12. But I will let a few of them escape from the sword and famine and pestilence, and they may declare all their abominations among the nations where they go, and may know that I am the Lord. God has a passion for his own name to be known, and that passion we must share. We must share that. If you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. If you deny me before men, I will deny you by the Father. While the culture, while many people speak of multiple ways to God, we stand resolute looking to the scriptures and holding high the name of Christ as the only way. That is why it is important. That is why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't just kind of cross their fingers behind their back and, and recite the little prayer just to kind of get out of trouble, Right? Because the name of Yahweh is more important than their own safety and than their own life. They understood this. They understood that there was a point beyond which they cannot retreat. We are reminded of the Coptic Christians in Egypt who were captured recently by ISIS. And many of you have seen the pictures where they, they bring them out, march them down this, this beach. And, uh, and um, hopefully you haven't seen the video where these men lose their heads because of the name of Christ, because they are people of the cross and they would not forsake the name. Why, you know, in our culture, in America, we just say, why didn't they just kind of, you know, cross their fingers and, and then ask God for forgiveness later? It's because they understand that God's passion for his own name cannot be thrust aside. Said, if you ask me to confess the name of Yahweh or lose my life, well, my answer is already made up. I will confess the name of Christ and lose my life because it's that important. We see um, a few points here that um, there's a connection as John Piper has, has brought attention to, there's a connection between when Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. There's a connection between that and what is going on in our world and what is coming and is at our doorstep in our culture that it may become to us no longer just a metaphor Every time, I guarantee you, every time that you've heard that passage preached where it says if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, the Sunday school teacher or the preacher or whoever, and I've said it many times, has said right after that, now, does Jesus really want you to cut your hand off? Of course not. But the reality is that depending on where you are and what you confess about Christ, that your keeping from sin may cause you to lose a hand or a head or a tax-exempt status. It may cause you to lose that. And we must be prepared. And by the way, the only reason that allowing our hand to be cut off or our tax-exempt status to be lost, or allowing us to be ridiculed in public because of, because of the name of Christ, the only way that that ever makes sense is if Christ and the glory of God is at the base of our desires, if we interpret everything by that. That's why it's all coming around here. So here's a few points. First of all, I want you to see in, in, in chapter three, verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors and treasurers and the, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. Basically what happens here is what we do in our own hearts every day. King Nebuchadnezzar built an image. He built an idol. He made his own God and then he called everybody to come and look and worship it because I guess that's what you do. When something has taken the place of your own heart, just call everybody else to come and worship it. Uh, this, 
what, what we must understand here as we live now in our culture is that this image that was built at one time did not exist. And that's my first point, that the gods of the culture come and go, but Yahweh remains. The gods of our culture come and go, but Yahweh remains. There was one time in chapter two, verse nine, or chapter two, I'm sorry, chapter two, verse 49, that this God did not exist. Chapter three, verse one, all of a sudden he does. And and before the book of Daniel ends, this God is gone. The gods of our culture come and go. Some last longer than others do. They pass quickly from prominence, but Yahweh remains. Our culture, folks, our culture picks up new gods every year. It's only in a certain kind of culture that Instagram can be so popular. It's only in a certain kind of culture that, that there is a market for selfie sticks. There's only a certain kind of culture that, that there is such a, a concern for self that, that this God kind of comes in and takes root in such a way that, that can even uh, make us be concerned so much with ourselves that we uh, lose concern for even a category of the divine. We are so far buried into our technology and into our prosperity and into other things that we forget that there is a category for God. Uh, this, this, our culture is, is selfism. Our culture is, is uh, worships a God and it is a God of, of self. Um, we, we see this in the prosperity gospel. Um, Christian hip-hop artist Shylin has said that it's uh, um, selfism, the fastest growing religion, they just dress it up and call it Christian. It's basically what happens. The, the marriage movement now that we see sweeping across our country basically says everyone else must look at what I feel and affirm it and celebrate it or else you're a bigot. It's all about me and what I want and we have lost a category for desires that God has for us that are outside of ourselves. We have focused so much on us that we have forgotten that there are things that are good for us that are outside of us. Secondly, I want to encourage you to see verses 16 through 18. If you'll look uh, verses 16 through 18, we'll read those quickly. That good theology breeds good doxology. And we will, I'll explain that here in just a moment. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Good theology breeds good doxology. That means what you believe about God, if it is good stuff and if it's solid stuff, I'm not talking about theology like this abstract egghead study of big words that nobody really understands. Good theology, good doctrine about God breeds a good heart of worship. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a a strong enough and a robust enough understanding of who God is that, that they could bear the weight of what the culture and their government was putting on them. Their government, say, their, their government, or their, their king, the culture says, hey, we're gonna come kill you. And they say, you know what? Our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, you can't take anything from us because our God gives what no man takes away and our God takes away what no man can give. So take my life. I don't care. Just like Paul said, it is gain if I lose my life. The only way that that philosophy ever makes sense is if Christ Yahweh, his name, his glory, rest at the bottom of all of the rest of our desires. It's the only way that that ever makes sense. It's the only way. They say the name of Yahweh means more to us than, means, means more to us that we would rather it be advanced and honored than our insignificant lives be spared because we crossed our fingers behind our backs and recited our little praise to save our own skin. A selfish generation can't do that. A selfish culture can't do that because they say the supreme being is me and whatever I have to do to save my own skin, I'll do it. You know, I'll cross my, my fingers. I'll, I'll say your prayer. I'll ask God for forgiveness later. I'll do 20 Hail Marys. Whatever I gotta do, I'll save my own skin. And in so doing, we, 
we recognize that, um, that perhaps we, we have never been changed if we find that our name in our hearts is greater than the name of Yahweh. So we, 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 have to ask our, we have to answer the same kinds of questions. In smaller ways, few of us have been uh, you know, confronted with a life or death decision like that. I often wonder about my own heart. At one point, at what point would I balk? At what point would I stutter? At what point would my knees buckle and would I cave in? I've wondered that of my heart. I want, you to, I want you to know that, but we answer the same kinds of questions every day. When the glory of God grips our heart, we change the way we do things. Just like Denzel Washington in, in Remember the Titans. You remember that movie? It's one of my favorite. Uh, when, when they're at camp, you know, and, and they're, they're out there doing the drill scene, it's really like one of the inspirational moments and he's out there shouting at the guys that are doing, that are doing the drills and stuff and he's like, we're gonna, we're gonna change the way we run. We're gonna change the way we eat. We're gonna change the way we block. We're gonna change the way we tackle. We're gonna change the way we win. In the same way as believers, we must change the way that we consider God. If we are ultimately concerned with the glory of God, then we will change the way we do our summers. If we are ultimately concerned about the glory of God, if it is the desire that we inform all other desires by, and it is the driving passion that we inform everything, it's the lens that we look through for everything else. We're going to change the way we do summers. We're going to change the way, you know, we're going to be less concerned about our comfort and more concerned about mission. We're going to be ultimately concerned with the glory of God. We'll change the way we eat supper at night, perhaps for the first time. Fathers will open up the Bibles at the, at the dinner table and read a short passage of Scripture. And I'm not talking about deliver a 45-minute oratory, but read a passage of Scripture and just ask, what does this mean and how should we change our life because of it? If the glory of God is the ultimate driving passion of our hearts, we inform everything else by it. We interpret everything else through that lens. It is going to change the way we do stuff. And it must. And it must. Thirdly, verses 24 through 26, we understand that our God will be with us even when we make hard decisions to follow him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego basically said, our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, you can't take anything in eternity from us. Therefore, we're not going to bow down to your stupid statue. You can't touch us. We are secure in Christ, verses 24 through 26. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste, declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He said, but I see four men unbound walking around in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. We understand that in some way, God will protect us. He will deliver us. Even if he had allowed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to go into the fire and to instantly die, that would have been for them deliverance because they would have been in his presence immediately. The only way that this kind of lifestyle and this kind of philosophy makes sense is if the glory of God is at the base of our desires. Fourthly, I'll show you this. When we do these hard things to announce the glory and the fame of Yahweh, others will see and they will believe. We can have that confidence based on the authority of Scripture. We see in the book of Acts when God tells the men to go to a city and they say, I have many people there. How can God have many people in a city before a missionary even arrives? It is because God goes before us and he prepares hearts even before we get there to do our thing. I have great confidence as we, as, we, uh, as we go into our summer and as we go to Peru and as we go to Kentucky that God has gone before us and he is even now as I am preaching preparing hearts to hear and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and it has so little to do with us and so very much to do with him. But we see here what happens. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out 
of the, of the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar orders, orders them out. And he says, he answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and deliver his servants, who has trusted in him and who has set aside the king's command. The very king who gave the command is now praising the men for disobeying it. Our God can do that in the hearts of kings and in the hearts of leaders and in the hearts of nations. And they yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid ruin. We don't have great confidence that here King Nebuchadnezzar came to be, you know, just a great believer. But what we do see is that when he was confronted with the glory of God, when he was confronted with the name of Yahweh, things changed. He was confronted in such a way that he pointed all the other people under his rule to look to that God because there's something special about him and something unique about his people. And those are the people that we must see. We we think to ourselves, well, you know, Greg, this, this is Old Testament stuff. And you know, if God did a miracle like this today, then people would come and believe. Why doesn't God do stuff like that anymore? If God would just put out, put on a big miracle uh, today, then people would just come and believe. I would encourage you to remember the Pharisees who saw all the signs and still didn't believe, A. And secondly, I would also encourage you to recognize that these kind of miracles can and do happen every day in the hearts of believers. Why? Because every day believers say to themselves, I will face ridicule. I will face being ostracized. I will face losing a limb in a strictly Islamic country. I will face losing my head. And the only way that a human being can ever reach the conclusion that that is good is if a miracle of grace has happened in their heart. We must beg God for those miracles to happen in our hearts, that we would have such resolve and that we would have such a burning passion for the name of Yahweh that we would say, come what may, my decision is made. And in the face of that, just like Jim Elliott in Ecuador, who was killed at the, at the end of a spear by a tribe of people to whom he was trying to love and, and share the gospel to, they killed him, they murdered him, Later, a few of the men, the very men who thrust the spear into his body came to know Christ because he was willing to go to death for what he believed. And we can have the, comp- we can have the confidence that when we live this kind of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego life, that there will be people who say what Nebuchadnezzar said, no other God is able to rescue in this way. When we live gospel-centered lives before our people and we say, hey, look at my sins and look at what I have been delivered from. Look at the mess that God brought me out of and that he saves me from every day. People will look at that and they will say, no other God is able to save in that way. When they see Christians who are marched down the shores of a beach in Africa and are beheaded and go to their deaths, refusing to renounce the name of Christ, there will be people who will say, no other God is able to save in that way. That is why we must know the name of Christ. That is why his passion must be at the seat of all of our other desires. Let it be so this morning. I so appreciate you listening to these words and I hope that I have in some way conveyed something that is beneficial to you and I want to extend a couple of invitations. And those, these invitations are not geared or intended to be some kind of, uh, you know, arm twisting, uh, you know, guilt thing. We, we kind of have this stigma, don't we? that if anyone comes down front and prays about something, that something must be wrong. You know, that person must have a problem. 
I want, to, I want us to, this morning, um, just kind of uh, blow that stigma out of the water, not for the purpose of everyone coming down and filling up some kind of stage, but if you need to come this morning, and, and, and even in between your pews or here this morning, lay out your heart before the Lord and say, Lord, create in me a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego heart, a heart that says, come what may, I will follow Christ. Then let us be humble enough to admit that we don't have that heart every day. And let us also, if you are here this morning and you recognize that this thing that I have been talking about, this, the, the passion for the glory of God has it's, it's never been the seat. It's never been at the base of all of your desires. You have never interpreted the rest of your life by it. That you have been living as a, what, what, what we call a functional atheist. In other words, you, you function, you live your life as if there is no God. That I, I would call you this morning uh, to come and to give your life to Christ. The reason I want to call you to come and do that is because only in Christ is there life and only in Christ is there purpose. There is no other God who is able to save you, period. And there is no other God who is able to save you like him. Would you come and know him? He has sent his son, he has taken on flesh and he came and lived the life that, that we could not live, died for the sins that we deserve to die for and now he calls you, come and know me. And I, I encourage you uh, to, to come. I will be available. Uh, Ethan is gonna lead us in, in um, a, a closing song as we uh, begin our week of worship together, as we go our separate ways. And, um, and let's pray that the glory of God, because of Abner Creek Baptist Church, that the glory of God um, may be known among the nations. Lord, you are good to us and you give us so many good things. You have given us examples in your scripture of men uh, and women who were able and who were willing to say that my life is nothing. Self is an empty God. It never fulfills, but you do. And you fulfill in such a way that it is worth me losing my life over that your name might be known. I pray, Lord, that we would be people who, who would get that. I pray, Lord, that we would be people who would go forward in these coming evil days, bold, loving our neighbors, sharing the gospel because they are the words of life. I pray, Lord, that we would be a gospel-centered people increasingly, that we would understand that there is no list of sins that we have not done. We are people most to be pitied because we are sinners. But praise God that in the person of Jesus Christ, you have come, you yourself, to make a way between broken people and a holy God if we would simply turn from our sins and give our lives to you. I pray that that would be the case this morning. I pray if there is one here who needs to come and to make that public, to confess you before men so that you will confess them before the Father. I pray that that would be because there is only one name under heaven that is given by which people can be saved and it is the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this name. Lord, help us to carry it well. Amen. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.